When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Get ready, Ohio. FanDuel, America's number one sports book, is coming to the Buckeye State. And to kick things off, you can get started with $100 in free bets as an early sign-up bonus. Plus, when you sign up today with promo code OHIOFD, you'll be all set when FanDuel goes live in Ohio. Then you can bet on all your favorite teams in all your favorite sports with $100 in free bets. Just download FanDuel's top-rated sportsbook app. It's safe, secure, and super easy to use. Ohio, this is your chance to get in on the action. Join today with promo code OHIOFD. Make every moment more with FanDuel, official sportsbook partner of the NFL. 21 or older and present in Ohio. Bonus issued in non-withdrawable free bets that expire seven days after FanDuel accepts its first real money sports wager in Ohio. one Unique user identity verification required. Offer ends on the go-live date. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Introducing Guinness Nitro Cold Brew Coffee Beer. Blending the smooth, creamy nitro taste of Guinness with hints of coffee, chocolate, and caramel. Guinness Nitro Cold Brew Coffee Beer, your new favorite part of the day. Look for it where Guinness is sold. Must be 21 and over to purchase. Please enjoy responsibly. Diageo Beer Company, New York, New York. Introducing the Lowe's List for Innovation. While our aisles are filled with innovative products, we've selected our favorites just for you. Like the exclusive Whirlpool washer with industry-first two-in-one removable agitator. We love this washer because you can customize any load. And with other smart features to streamline your laundry routine, this product is a must-have for families. Shop the full Lowe's list of top picks at Lowe's.com. Lowe's, home to any budget, home to any possibility. U.S. only. Ken McCusick. Uh, this is our last one looking back at this season. Well, I guess not quite, but Ken McCusick, how you doing? Life's good, Josh. How about you? All right. This is the first time we're go- last time we're going to look back at a specific game. There you go. We will take a look back at the players next week and, and look forward in terms of what the Ravens have in their roster more than more than really looking right. back. Right. So we're going to look back at the wild card loss, 23-17, and uh, look at the offensive line and, and – uh, deep into the offensive line because there's been some talk about that, some tipping and stuff we'll have to get to, as well as Lamar Jackson and how he did, which we all know how he did, but we'll kind of look a little deeper into that. So, Ken McCusick, how's your life been without football for a few days? <laughs> well, Ravens right. football. 
I mean, there's still some tie-up things to be done with the season, including this podcast, articles this week, etc. Next week, there's roster analysis and whatnot. So it's it's not a completely abrupt transition into no football, but not having a game to look forward to is very different. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, you know, we'd, we'd love to be traveling somewhere this weekend for a game in New England specifically, but uh, where we're not, we're, we're here. And, uh, uh, you know, there's a lot to take from this Ravens season, and, you know, we'll we'll have to sort through that. Right, but not not cleaning out the locker room quite yet. Still a little bit to do to close out this season. There you go. Um, all right, there's a lot of blame going around this week. There was a lot of blame on Sunday afternoon for for the loss of this. Uh, I'm hearing people blame Lamar Jackson, blame uh, John Harbaugh, blame Marty. Basically, anyone but the defense is getting blamed for this loss. Yeah, I think that's that's kind of natural in sports. Is is people search for answers in in the case of a loss, and they they really have a desire to blame somebody for things that are not going right, and very much true in sports. And and I, I find that my articles probably get more attention and more response when people are angry about a loss than when they're happy about a win. So it's an interesting formula that people will go That's out just the internet. Up. Internet. People are quiet when they're happy. And there people you go. love to complain on the internet. They do indeed. So, um, do you think any of these are legitimate gripes? Do you think it's legitimate to be upset with uh, the coaching decisions or the fact that uh, special teams didn't play well or that Lamar Jackson had a QBR of zero going into the fourth quarter? I mean, all of them were contributing factors to the loss of the game. I think that's that that would be fair to say. I don't think any one of them is the factor. Uh, you know, I, if if we had to go through them with, I mean, let's just talk about them one at a time. Right. The, the coaches are blamed certainly for not adapting to what the Chargers were doing during the game. I think they're blamed a lot for not switching to Flacco. We can talk about that a little bit later. Um, I think the coaches really have a legitimate gripe on execution in this game. They'll often point to that as something that, that let the team down. But, you know, the Ravens lost this game at the line of scrimmage in right. a lot of ways on, on defense and, uh, sorry, on offense where they, they were, uh, beaten by the, the Chargers defensive line. So we're going to get into that a lot, obviously. Right. You can't, um, you can't blame coaching for sacks and, uh, turnovers. Yeah. Not unless they're, they're doing something where the, where the scheme is creating those. Right. So if they're if they're throwing you know endlessly into a seven man defense or seven man drop into defense, then you could blame it, I guess, on that. But uh, you know, you could if they if they're not protecting properly and they get a lot of sacks, you could also break, uh, blame the coaches for that. But in any case, I don't think they deserve more than a, the normal share of blame for this one. Uh, I do think that they got out coached, but it was because the Chargers had an, just an outstanding game plan that worked for this specific situation. All right, next up on the list would be special teams and their struggles. Yeah, so obviously they gave up a couple long returns, including that big return at the beginning of the second half. Uh, that kind of was demoralizing, given the fact it was already 12 nothing. You're hoping to get a defensive stand. They did end up stopping them, blocking a field goal at that point, uh, or, or missing a field goal. I think it was blocking a field goal. And then they also blocked a punt on the next drive, finally got on the board with three points. But right. the fact that the offense didn't turn any of these those opportunities into – into more was disappointing. Uh, sure. Um, and then finally, Lamar Jackson and his constant struggles for the game. 
Yeah, so he, he had a terrible game. Um, in the, I think the biggest thing that I would put on Jackson for the day, he had some bad passes and uh, and he had a lot of fumbles. And the fumbles are are more of an ongoing issue now with the with the number he had in in nine starts this year, or nine games that he played significantly in this year, and. Uh, you know they've they've got to figure out how to reduce those, and we've talked about this a little bit about this. The the mesh fumbles in particular, the ones that are on the handoff where he may be pulling the ball, it may not be. That's the one they need to work on a lot this season to try and reduce. But they also need to increase his pocket awareness and make sure he gets stripped less often in the pocket. Uh, he needs to find a way to hold the ball better so he's not fumbling the ball on his own when he's on the move. And that get, that's happened some this year as well. So anyway, mix of things, but the fumbles are, are the biggest problem. If you look at his passing, um, you know, he, he missed some passes. One of the big ones that I was really upset about was a fairly easy first down throw he had after he'd made a miraculous fumble, pick it up, roll to the left. And then I forget it was if it was Snead or Crabtree or whoever it might have been, but but he threw the ball well short. And we've seen that a few times that, uh, as Bruce Arians once said in a broadcast, he tries to hand the ball to the receiver that's 10 or 15 yards away instead of really firing it. And, uh, and that's been an ongoing problem. So I, I'm, uh, you know, I'm disappointed with his play in general. He did have a very good fourth quarter in terms of his uh, comeback and playing well that, that offsets a little bit of that to make him not the, the biggest villain of the piece. All right. And the final thing to complain about would be the offensive line. Um, there's been articles written about tip-in claims. Uh, I don't want to get to that yet. First, we might as well, I mean, if you've got anything broad to say about the offensive line, otherwise we can just dig into the individual players. But as as a broad line, they had a really bad game as well, right? Yeah, it's by far their worst game of the season. In fact, for four of the six players, it was their worst individual game of the season. And this was a game where a lot was on the offensive line. They needed to get the running backs to level two, where the running backs would have a chance to outmuscle a very small group of defenders. Now, we've talked about that a little bit, I believe, on the last show, but 58 of 59 snaps the Chargers ran. They had the quarter defense in the field, which means they've got 210-pound safeties in the middle of the field playing inside a linebacker. And that provides a lot of opportunity to get into second level with your 238-pound running back and really make some hay. Now, they got very few of those. Dixon obviously was stripped, and Edwards and Dixon between them had 14 carries with a long of five yards on wow. the day. So not only did they not get to level two, the times they got to level two, they didn't really do anything with it. But um, primarily, I would say the Ravens lost this game by losing way too many one-on-one battles at the line of, line of scrimmage, and they never really got a big chance to test that undersized Ravens back end. This also would be a good game where the tight ends would have been a lot bigger than any one the Ravens had in the secondary. So getting Andrews or Boyle or some of those guys in a level two with the football would have been nice as well. And uh, the Ravens did not uh, did not find a way to get that done. So it's, uh, it's a shame and, uh, and a big opportunity missed. Right. And that's where we talked uh, kind of going into this game that the Chargers – and on the second time around, we're determined to find a way to beat the Ravens, and they focused on those linebackers and adding more speed uh, up in the front there. Yeah, they did. And, and you know what's interesting is that I don't think a lot of this would have happened if they'd still had 
Jatavis Brown available for the game. So they might not have gone with the hyper-aggressive defensive line play that they did, which they clearly they were looking for penetration to get in the backfield to make plays on that defensive line instead of doing as much containment, which they left in a lot of ways to the secondary in this game. Uh, they they basically they found a blueprint to beat what I think is the normal Jackson formula for for um, uh, emphasizing complementing right. the power run game with his own ability to get outside. Yeah, and it'll be interesting to see that if the Chargers stick with that game plan, or you would assume they go back to what they've been playing, and this was a special thing they were doing just for Lamar. Yeah, you know, they're short a player, so it will be very interesting. But I think Belichick will have some answers on how to how to address it if they decide to stay with second and seven in the secondary right. and, and how he'd go about that. So anyway, we'll we'll see. Yeah, it's strange to uh adjust your defense that much in a playoff game. Yeah, it is. I mean it was out of necessity they did it. So they had injuries, they had you know, Brandon Mebane was dealing with his daughter's tragic death. Right. So it's it's uh you know, it's a they had to do it. And, you know, uh, sometimes, you know, invention is born of necessity, and I think that was probably the case in this game. Right. Um, yeah, kind of the case of the whole Ravens season as well. Yeah. But uh, let's get to some individual guys, and let's start with Ron uh, Stanley. Yeah, so Ronnie Stanley had, had been having a great run. He hadn't had a bad game since week two at Cincinnati, but he turned in his worst game of the year, a .53 raw score. He had a couple penalties, an offensive holding, a false start. Two and a half pressures, a third of a sack, half a penetration. It was a little bit of everything. He missed five blocks. So uh, not not a good game. A .53 raw score. He did get a, a, a significant adjustment for being opposite Bosa and Ingram for uh, for most of the game. So uh, anyway, he squeaks in at the bottom of the D range, frankly. And uh, it's his worst game of the year. Cincinnati was, was better than this one. And uh, a shame that he ends on that kind of a note. Uh, you know, some of the tipping things I want to get into with Stanley in terms of how he's setting up. I, the Chargers said some things after the game that I don't like the way that they presented them. It's basically, we were a lot smarter than you guys, and we figured out what you were doing, and we picked up on this and this and this and this. And, I, you know, anyone who goes through the film can basically pick out four plays where it was true. And then they can also pick out four plays where it wasn't true also. It's just a matter of what you actually want to show. So I think you got You have to look at it one play at a time to to, to really get at some of these tipping things. Save that for later because I want to yeah, go through the scoring first. A little deeper because sure. it's something that yeah the Ravens need to look out for. And I'm surprised that the the Chargers must have been feeling pretty cocky to let that out instead of just keep that as their secret. Yeah, I mean it's. I, I think it's foolish from that regard. They obviously feel very cocky about it, but there's also some. I mean, there's. It's like a bunch of high school kids right. talking about after a game in terms of what what went right and what went wrong, and it, it, it just it, it it was not a particularly mature athlete thing to do. All right, speaking of mature athletes, James yeah. Hurst got pulled from the game because yeah, he was so, poorly. Yeah, I, I, they had been doing some rotation with Bozeman anyway, but he played 27 snaps in this game, only made 16 blocks. He missed six, uh, gave up one pressure, one half a quarterback hit, two and two thirds sacks. So he was beaten twice for solo on a sack, and that doesn't happen all that often that somebody gets 100% of the charge for a sack. And then he had another where, where he had two-thirds. His total on points was minus three-and-a-half for the game. So he's got a negative raw score. And, in fact, it's the worst single raw score I've ever recorded, and that goes back to the beginning of the Harbaugh era in 2008. Wow. So his own game in 2014 
when it appeared the Ravens had lost their playoff spot with a loss in Houston. He faced J.J. Watt, and he had a negative score that just came into the positives with the adjustment. This time, it's negative even after adjustment. So uh, an awful game from James, not the way he wanted to end it. He, he had a very inverted season, so he played five games or six games and pretty well at right tackle. And that included, you know, some help in terms of what they were doing for him, a lot from Yonda and a lot from tight ends and shipping and whatnot. But he maintained, you know, good grades that he never has before at right tackle. And then they moved him back to left guard. They put, they uh, sorry, after the injury, he missed some games. They moved him back to left guard. They moved Brown in at right tackle. Brown had played well, so there was no reason for him to give up that right tackle spot. And Hurst went back to left guard where he played very well last year, or fairly well last year, let's put it that way. He did not play well this year. His his uh, five games, he had three Fs, uh, including this one, and in aggregate, including this game, it certainly scores as an F overall. So not a good not a good round, uh, not a good performance after the injury. You know, Maureen turned to me after we scored the game and said, "I hope he was hurt." And and in some cases, I, I, I you never hurt, hope for someone to have a, any kind of a lingering back injury. But on the other right. hand, that kind of an explanation for it would actually provide hope going into next year. Whereas I think uh, Hurst is really a, a, probably a bubble player at this point to make the team next year. Wow. He's he's signed and he, they just signed him to a four year deal uh, for seventeen million. But they can also get out of that for eight million uh, effectively after one year. So right. there are there if they draft a, a offensive lineman on the inside, I think there's a chance that. They may keep Hurst as a backup. That's an awful lot to pay for a backup. They may decide this really isn't the guy we think we, we can go with going forward, let him go, and and uh, try and work with some of these younger guys. Well, what about Bozeman? Did things improve once he came in? They, they did improve, but not to a passing level. So Bozeman okay. also had the same kind of uh, problems. He, he had a high F in the game, .59 at guard. Actually, that's not even the top of the F scale. It would be a tackle. But, uh, but at guard, it's still about eight points short of passing. It, it wasn't a good game. He had he had uh, one and a third sacks allowed in only 30 snaps, but he was clearly better than Hurst, who, who uh, had a negative score after adjustment. So Bozeman had, had shown a lot more in the earlier games this year. This performance actually uh, mutes what was a very good uh, season overall, probably drops him into the B range uh, for, the, for the year. And uh, he played, uh, what, close to 200 snaps now for the, for the entire year. Let me get that exactly for you because I think that's actually significant. So Bozeman played, uh, come on now. Let's see, Bozeman played 230 snaps for the season with this, uh, an aggregate of .82. So he's going to be a mid-B uh, with adjustment from that level. And a solid... You know, nothing wrong with that as a rookie year. It's just like everybody on this line picked the worst time for the worst game. So uh, he was he was certainly responsible for losing some one-on-one back matchups on the inside as well. When um, well, when the whole when everyone on the line is struggling, I mean, if the line as a whole is struggling, that's going to make it hard for individuals to have good games, right? Isn't the play of one lineman really kind of affect the play of the guy next to him? Yeah, I think there is a a critical mass kind of f- effect you're get you're you're getting there if that's what you're getting at Josh that you right. you you get a lot of subpar play and then everybody looks even worse because they're because they're doing they I I think that's true I think there could if, be some pickup there if yeah if one guy's failing the other guys are trying to pick that up and their own stuff and it's causing them to fail so uh, let's yeah. go next guy in the line with Matt Skura. 
Yeah, so Matt had a had a, another game that was kind of tough. He had a, a D overall in this one, .79 after adjustment. Uh, he wasn't as bad, certainly, as the others. He allowed a couple pressures, though. One of them allowed uh, a player directly in the face of Jackson as he was, uh, and that was on the on the final strip fumble uh, that that put the lights out uh, eventually. But uh, Skura gave up pressure on that play. Uh, overall, uh, three pressures, half a penetration. It, it could have been worse for him. It certainly could have been a lot better. Uh, he got a D. He was one of three players who ended up with that grade. All right, and then Yanda was playing outstanding the past few weeks of the season. How did he continue with a struggle in line? And so he he played very well in the first half, and he was the only one really playing well on, I'd say, the entire offense in that first half. And he did through the first couple drives of Q3, he was fine as well. But the fourth quarter, he had a very tough fourth quarter. Uh, a couple pressures allowed, uh, another quarterback hit that I, that I gave him half the charge for. So, very un yonder like fourth quarter, but uh, overall a B grade for this game. Uh, certainly was the best of the Ravens linemen, not his best performance nonetheless. And, uh, you know, his future is really one of the big questions for the Ravens. I would love to see them anchor with him for the next, you know, two to four years. He may ha- want to play one more year. He may want to resign and make a little bit more money and play three more years. Who knows? But uh, but I think if if he's going to secure his legacy and make sure he goes to the Hall of Fame uh, eventually, because uh, I think he's going to be an eventually player, not a first ballot guy. He's right. probably going to need to play about three more years. All right. Uh, and how about the rookie, Orlando Brown? He's kind of had an up-and-down season. Yeah, most, uh, he, he really hadn't had a bad game until this one. So he, had, he hadn't had any, anything worse than a C. And in this game, he got a D. Uh, I know that Pro Football Focus has been making some some points about Brown not allowing any sacks. Right. Let me just tell you, that's really not true. He's, he's allowed three sacks now on the year, one and a third in this game. And uh, it, he's definitely, <laughs> if when you look at the sacks and, and assign partial credit, he's or partial charges, he's got some he's got some significant holes in that. Right. But I will say this: this was the first game where he's beaten really frequently by the speed rush. And we talked about that, you know, coming in. That question was, would he have the feet? to handle the the speed rush at the NFL level. So that's the, that's the rush to the outside where, you know, basically the, the a smaller player sometimes or a, or a pass rusher uses a combination of leverage and speed to get around that edge. And it can be very difficult for a slow-footed right tackle or even a slow first-step guy to be able to uh, handle that. And Brown uh, really showed up very well for most of the year, but this time he was beaten, beaten twice to the outside, including the – the uh, final strip sack by Anwoso that uh, uh, that put the lights out. So uh, tough game for him. Uh, there's a lot to like about his rookie year. There's a lot to like about his makeup and how he's addressed problems from his rookie year. I think he's still going to be a fine NFL player, but uh, but unfortunately took a step back in a game that was awfully important spot. All right, all right. Let's you got We got to get to it. Let's get to the whole. Uh, offensive line is tipping the plays because I know the Ravens coaching staff at a minimum has to have been obsessed with this the past couple of days, watching game film, trying to figure out what's going on that they missed in all of this. And I'm sure you did the same this week, right, Ken? Yeah, I took a little bit of time doing this. So I, I here's what I'll say about this. I think the, the Chargers probably, as you mentioned, should just be keeping their mouths shut about this kind of thing, about tipping and whatnot. First of all, just to keep it to yourself. But second of all, it just looks stupid if somebody looks it up and finds out that, yeah, that's not really true in terms of the trend. So they made one of the claims they made is that almost 100% of the time when his left foot was back, uh, the – 
uh, play was going to be a run. Sorry, a pass. And when his left foot was even, the play is going to be a run. Oh. Who? Who? Stanley's. Stanley's. Okay. So, so we got to start with this. He's a left tackle. So the first thing is left tackle always, always starts with your left foot a little bit back. You're defending that outside. You have to be ready to create a pocket. So even if you're in a three-point stance and you're running the ball, you're going to have your your left foot's going to be a little bit back so that you can you can step into the uh, defend against the pass appropriately. And if you're a left tackle, you can you can take your first step out of that, and and it shouldn't be a problem even if your left foot's a little back. Here's the issue though. There are a number of times during a game, particularly when you're in a two-minute offense or you're running no huddle or you're trying, to, you're trying to move up the field quickly to catch up, any of those things. And that was the entire fourth quarter, which is a lot of the Ravens' snaps in the game. It's a lot of the passing downs from earlier in the game where Stanley actually lines up in a two-point stance as opposed to a three-point stance. Three-point stance you do on a down where it's not really sure whether you're going to run or pass most of the time. And you, most of the time on passing downs, you line up in a two-point stance. Now, if you've seen this on TV, though, not everybody necessarily follows it this closely, but if you're in a three-point stance, your, your, your right hand is on the ground if you're Stanley, uh, or a hand is on the ground, let's put it that way, and you're, you, you then are able to move more quickly upfield um, when you are in an erect two-point stance, which means you're kind of squatting, you typically have that left foot much further back, and it's much more likely that you will be in a in pass blocking. And they know this by down and distance. They understand that this is the case. So if the Chargers were really claiming that his two-point stance was tipping off anything, it's just a load of bullshit. I utter a load of bullshit. Of course, the two-point stance always is a fairly solid indicator that a pass is about to happen. So it's really the three-point stances that you need to look at. And I looked at – I looked at – tried to – separate these stances with three three uh the three point stances he had and there that occurred in the game a total of 25 times now he had of those 19 were even foot three point stances as i would call it now that doesn't mean exactly even but that means fairly close to even as like i mentioned the right. left foot is typically a little bit back of those 19 that were an even three point stance there were 15 runs and four passes Okay, and and do I draw a conclusion from 15 and 4? I would not call it nearly 100%. I would say you're probably more likely to run out of a three-point stance than a than a two-point stance obviously. And I would also say that uh you're more likely to run if you're the Ravens, period. So I don't know what they've been giving away necessarily by the even 3 having this 15 to 4 ratio in them. So is it a little bit of a giveaway perhaps? I will say this, the Chargers defensive line completely outplayed the Ravens defensive line. So they've got legitimate offensive claims. That, sorry, offensive line. So yes, they compl- they completely out uh, sorry, they they have legitimate claims to the fact that they were onto something or that their aggressiveness was just very effective, which I really think is closer to the truth. Is they allowed their players in the secondary in level 2 and level 3 to handle the contain Lamar responsibilities that would normally be assigned to those edge defenders. And that allowed Bosa and Ingram to absolutely tee off in this game. And they did all sorts of things to move those guys around and make them more effective. But I wouldn't really point to tipping. I'd point to Bosa and Ingram basically being greenlit on every play to do whatever they want. Those guys are are extraordinarily talented players, and they really outworked, outmuscled, and outspeeded uh, both of the Ravens tackles. So that's that's to be pointed out. 
Last point I'll make. When they when he did have a back foot three, so meaning his his foot was further back, but he was in a right. three point stance, three run, three pass. So I'm not sure what they so were giving was, away yeah. there, but that was a hundred. If, if the notion was that was a hundred percent pass. Anyway, if you if you're testing this like a statistical test, there were seven out of twenty five false positives. There was a whole bunch more that that I don't think that you know the information by down and distance would have been more significant, honestly, than the than the, the placement of Stanley's feet. So I don't see it here. I, uh, you know, I, I'd love to watch some film with some player from the Chargers, maybe for him to him to explain to me what he's reading in terms of tells. But honestly, I don't I don't think that's uh, uh, it's particularly true. I think they basically they greenlit their entire defensive line to go wild, and they won the one on one matchups against the Ravens offensive line, and that was how. This game in the end was lost. Right. Well, unfortunately, those uh, Chargers offensive linemen are a little busy this week to yeah. to yeah. break it down for us. Um, all right, then let's get to one of the other excuses, or I guess not an excuse, but let's get to the decision to stick with Jackson. Because if you watch the TV broadcast, if you were in the stands, if you were Ray Lewis up in the booth with Steve Ashanti, everyone seemed to expect and be calling for Joe Flacco to go in this uh, game, even if it was just to mix things up. Right. So so they talked about it, and there's been a, a lot of individual plays. I've been a proponent for Joe going in, particularly on the quarterback sneak and the two-minute drill, a lot of other times right. this season. Uh, this is one I, I thought about at the game, and I was kind of expecting it. I, I probably even was thinking it would have been a good idea at the end of the first half when Jackson was absolutely having incredible problems. I'd say after looking at the film – a, and but also in terms of looking at what the Chargers were doing defensively as far as having seven defensive backs on the field, I'd say this. Joe has never had success against a four-man pass rush, which is drop seven to coverage, and when the four-man pass rush is effective. And it's very hard. It's, it's about the hardest thing, the surest tenet in, in defensive football is if you have an effective four-man pass rush, you can get pressure effectively for, you're going to be successful defensively. Right. And it's worse in this game because the Chargers are playing with seven defensive backs who are perfectly capable of creating all sorts of havoc in level two in terms of the passing game if Joe did go to that. And more, more than that, none of them are really required to police the run game if Flacco's in there. So you don't have that little advantage built into there. So I think I could envision a much more or an even uglier second half had Joe come in, honestly, I don't think I don't think the strategy would have worked to bring him in. I think it was pretty much proven that the correct strategy was used when Lamar did miraculously have a couple escapes in the fourth quarter, made some wonderful passes, including the floater over Derwin James that looked like a Mahomes throw for uh, the pass to Dixon, and then he he beat coverage down the sideline. Remember, Jackson never throws outside the numbers, but he threw the the ball right to the pylon, thirty one yards complete to. Uh, um, Crabtree for the touchdown. So I, I was, no, I was impressed with him in the fourth quarter in terms of what he was able to do, and I think they did make the right decision to stay with Jackson. I, you know, the, I, I feel kind of ashamed as a fan myself at the game that I was more in tuned or, or more of the opinion that that uh, uh, Flacco should have come in, but but there apparently I wasn't alone. I mean, there were there were <laughs> people all over. Shouting for it, I think that I think everyone except for John Harbaugh was ready for Flacco to go in, um, and I don't, I don't, I still. That's one thing that we'll never know because we'll never know how the Chargers' defense would have adjusted to then Joe being on the field, and and so it's hard to play that out. But 
When we look at Lamar in those final couple minutes where he did have success, was that based on did the Chargers defense back off any into more of a prevent? I think the, the, the key element of that was the Ravens had a couple of longer drives where they had more plays, and that naturally slows down the pass rush. You just can't, right. can't rush the passer at the highest level, play after play after play. Uh, incomplete passes give a short respite if you huddle. Uh, and and other but plays that are run consecutively without timeouts that are just you know quick 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 uh, makes it very difficult on the pass rush to to okay. stay uh, winded. Gotcha. So it was more of a fact that it worked because the Ravens finally started to put drives together and none of them yeah. short out. They weren't fumbling the ball well till the very end. Yeah, and that, right. that was it was interesting. I mean, obviously they didn't have a lot of time left, so they weren't they weren't going to have a great chance to go down the field, but they might have gotten a point where they could throw the ball in the end zone. But what part of what made that easier for them to get that sack at the end was the fact that the previous drive had ended. The defense then had been on the field. There were timeouts involved in stopping the Chargers drive in three plays. Then they came back, and there was a spike involved directly before the sack, and then they got a speed sack to, to end the game. So it, it's it's a case, I think, where – you had a better chance to have a rested pass rusher there on that final play than you did at any point previously for the for the previous two drives. Okay. So, uh, it, other than maybe the first play of that drive as well. But anyways, it was a uh, uh, it was what it was. There wasn't a lot of time left at that point. Jackson had to find some receiver, and obviously it was a you know unfortunate that he got stripped. All right. All right, let's get to the mailbag. Even though the season is over for the Ravens, you can still get in your questions using the hashtag film study mailbag. First one up, Ken, is thank you for all the work you do break on uh, breakdowns each and every game. Love hearing the analysis and overall perspectives on all things Ravens. Curious to hear your thoughts on the offensive performance and why there was no adjustment made by the offensive coaching staff. Uh, to put Lamar and the offensive line in a better position after they continued to get dominated and pushed around. Okay, so he's he's got a lot in there, and some of it we've already covered. Obviously, right. first of all, thanks thanks for listening. Who what the name on that? I, I don't have a name on that one. Okay, budget. Uh, but anyway, thanks for listening, everybody who's who's here. I hope you'll continue to subscribe and 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 take this next year. Uh, the the only thing that I could have seen them doing more in terms of adjustment would have been to try and do more to chip. Bosa and Ingram, or keep additional pass blockers in for just that purpose. So if they were, if they had done more of that, uh, that would have been one adjustment that I w- I could have seen as being particularly as being useful. That also gives you an option when you keep a tight end in, like Andrews or like Boyle, maybe to to let him leak out late, catch the football as you know the the, the pocket is right. breaking down or being reset. And then and then make a play in level two with you know as a bigger man against some smaller defenders. So I th- I like I would have liked that uh, of all the adjustments they could have made. You know we've talked about you know Jackson versus Flacco or or you know getting away from the run maybe earlier. Uh, you know I think I think the only one I really would have pointed to was they they would have had to find some way to stop that that pass rush effort a little more effectively. All right. Uh from Brad schematically it seems predictable that the Ravens primary pull and run to the right side of the line is this sort of directional favor in common across the league when it wasn't working it seemed like the team didn't have a good alternative option a very good point very good point in terms of they didn't really have a good alternative option now now let's talk about that for for a minute because there is it is very true that the Ravens have a heavily right-handed running game and there's good reasons for it 
For starters, it's not necessarily based on the guy who's pulling from left guard. That guy may or may not be able to, to handle the responsibilities, which are probably more significant on the power side. So the guys, the two guys on the power side who, the, who it depends on are Brown, who's obviously a big physical guy and has the ability to completely engulf and push around uh, an opponent, and also Yanda, who has the most significant role because he typically has to pivot through that hole. So he effectively, uh, as the power is run, le- run right with Hurst being the pulling blocker and perhaps a tight end going that way as well, Yanda's responsibility is to take that usually defensive tackle, take him on the shoulder, and and turn him through the hole as the running back exploits it, as the back exploits. It could also be Jackson, and then uh, you know you have you have two opportunities to get a pulled block, usually from a tight end and a and a guard, and then you have Brown, whose responsibilities can be a kick out in level two, meaning he's taking an edge defender and trying to push him out of the play, or it can be a seal if your if your pullers are taking care of the kick out responsibilities. So he can he can move to level two, and effectively. I'll say go half a level beyond the line of scrimmage. So while Yanda is turning the defensive tackle, he can pick up a linebacker or a defensive lineman who is moving to flow to the play, to flow to the power side. So uh, Brown has been extremely good at that. He's had the mobility for that kind of thing. It's not a long move, but you know some right tackles can't do it. Austin Howard would be a guy who I would point to as maybe having trouble with it. But but. Uh, this is a this is a thing that Brown had been particularly good at all year in terms of sealing on the inside. So here's the the point is it's not just about who's on the pulling side who's pulling and Hurst is quote unquote the better puller. He pulls more because the guys on the power side are much more able to set that up properly. Now does that create a problem for the offense? Well, it can. I, you know, it, it would be better if you could run your power game to either side. What that really requires is two outstanding guards. So they need to have another guard on the on the left side who could handle Yanda's responsibilities on the right side in terms of uh, keeping that hole turned properly as the back goes through it. I don't think they really trust Hurst to do that, honestly. Bozeman be a question as to whether he can get there, but he might. Uh, it was always great when they had grubs and then they could run power in either direction. So they, they, they had grubs and Yanda at the same time. And those were two very talented guys. Grubs was also a good puller, but, but either, either player could, uh, could handle either side, and honestly, Stanley it, it would be, is the one wild card there. He provides a little a little bit of value on the backside because his mobility gives you more ability to make a block in level two if you're running to the right. But Stanley also, I think, has the ability to handle a power component and seal or kick out as necessary on that left side if they could find the right guard to handle that pivot responsibility on the on the power run left. So anyway, that's. That's my take on the situation. I agree that it probably puts them at a disadvantage in terms of allowing the backside um, defensive end, in this case, to be more green lit on any play, to, to get into the backfield, to get upfield, as opposed to, um, uh, or or just to have specific contain responsibilities. And in this game we mentioned, I think the defensive backs really t- took over the contain responsibilities, and the defensive end really had a, had a green lit ability at that point. So anyway, uh, it, it is what it is. I understand the, the, the comments about the Ravens' one-sided pull game. I would love for it to be two-sided, but... It's one-sided because it's very effective in that direction. Gotcha. All right, Jalen gets in. If Lamar doesn't progress in training camp and his first two games of the preseason with his passing and anticipation, should we maybe trade for Nick Foles for Lamar to learn under his backup? 
Uh, that's a very specific question, so I'm going to generalize it a little bit. Any chance Lamar would be a backup next season? He's the starting QB, right? I, I really can't see any chance. I mean, is it possible that he'd be benched after a certain number of weeks? Possibly. Is it possible he could get hurt? Somebody else could play well, right. and then he wouldn't have the he wouldn't have the starting role when he came back. That's always possible. Happened to Joe this year, right? Um, so all, all of these things are are you know not impossible, but I don't think the Ravens are planning to draft another quarterback, and I don't think they're planning to bring in a backup who is um, a guy that they expect to make the playoffs with if they if they lose Lamar. So I think the the, the guy that makes the most sense. And really, probably would give him the best chance to maybe win with this defense. It's probably it's probably RG three. I mean, right. it, it means you don't have to really change your your game plan entirely, and you can you can play the play the hand you got when you when the time comes. And RG three looked pretty good on that one drive in Atlanta. He uh, he certainly uh, you know put it together nicely and took advantage of of the line weariness on the opposing side, just the way that uh, Lamar had. So. Uh, you know, I liked what I saw uh, from him in that limited thing. Obviously, like, when he's been good, he's been pretty pretty good in the, in the past years. So he, he could be good enough to get him to the playoffs. Right. No, that was that's what I got written right here in my notes is to ask you about RG3 as that backup because RG3 even made a comment about how none of this is new. This is the same stuff we did at the Redskins many years ago. Uh-huh. So it's something that he can run, this type of offense. Yeah, it's, and that's it's good to hear. I, I was happy to see the positive comments from Lamar, uh, from from RG three, I should say. And by the way, there's nothing else he should say in that position. I mean, you say right. the right things in in the NFL, and I think RG three probably still wants to start at age 29 next year, and he could well be looking around the league. There's a, there's a number of teams. It's it's probably never going to be another chance for RG three to start if he doesn't start this next year because this next year is the opportunity where a number of teams are shorthanded and there there might be some team desperate enough to give him a chance. The other thing he he could move to is a is a place where the quarterback situation is very unsettled and he might have the chance to be the to to be the backup who gets to play if a if a quarterback is not playing well. So he's got a couple couple different options now. In Baltimore, he's he's not going to be given the starting role. For any reason besides injury, I don't believe. Right. But it's also, this is a copycat league, so you could see another team saying, well, that works with Baltimore and Lamar. Let's We could roll that with RG3 and do the same offense. Yeah, I, I think I think they could look and they could say that. And RG3 made the point once at the podium this year, he's actually faster than Lamar. And I don't doubt him in terms of straight line speed. Uh, the cutting ability and whatnot that Lamar have is, is, is very at another level. So I don't think RG3 right. really brings that to the table anymore. But, uh, but you know, maybe, maybe there's some team that wants to try and, and, and copycat the offense as possible. All right. Uh, John's question is, out of all the articles I've read, there was no mention of the run game coordinator or the offensive line coach, just how bad the players were, which I agree with. But what about the coaches? Well, it's been my contention the last couple of years that this coaching staff has really made lemons, sorry, made lemonade out of lemons. They've had, you know, a bunch of frankly fairly mediocre interior offensive linemen, and they've gotten some very solid play out of them, with the exception of Yonda, of course. And, you know, if you look back at what Hurst did last year, what Bozeman did for much of this year, uh, as a rookie, I mean, you know, is is ahead of schedule. What they got out of Illuminor this year was really exceptional in terms of, of his ability. He, he stepped forward. I give some of it to Illuminor, but I definitely give some of it to the coaching staff in those in those terms. The ability of the coaching staff to implement that new run game at midseason and do all of the things they did and do it so successfully, even against bad run defenses, which they were, um, I think that, that it was very impressive what 
Roman uh, and and Morningwig put together in terms of game planning there. I, I think Roman is generally and probably correctly credited as being the architect of the run game, where Dallasandris is really an offensive line coach who teaches rep by rep. Uh, the style is one that uh, you know I, I'm continually drawn to at camp in terms of watching the offensive line in their positional drills, just because. He usually has only a group of two or three players that are actually performing the drill, and everybody else has to watch, you know, what's going on there. And he, and, and he goes through it's one rep at a time, and he gives advice to each of the players. It's just it's it's old school all the way, and uh, and it seems to work. All right, uh, Minion Hunter points out that Tim White, our wide receiver, was signed uh, to the Jets this week. How much will that hurt not having him around next year? I do not think that will be a 10-point impact on the Ravens not making the playoffs in 2019 if they don't. Yeah, so, now, of course, I, <laughs> if we can't have any other, if no wide receivers want to come to Baltimore, that's an issue. But, yeah, yeah, that's a small guy. Yeah, it's, it's, right. a good, it's a good point. I mean, and if you, wanted to, if you want to take the most positive outlook on Tim White, I'd say this, is that he is possibly a guy who could create after the pocket is reestablished for Lamar. So I think he's a, he's a guy who might fit that mold. I want a hard-working receiver. Uh, I also want one with good hands, but but I want a hard-working receiver who can do that. And, uh, you know, I don't think they're looking to make a change in the return game, but White had his shot there. It didn't work out. And uh, and once he lost that, you know, opportunity, and they've got Cyrus Jones, I think the chance of White making the team next year actually was fairly slim anyway. Gotcha. All right, uh Dustin Cox gets in with, do you think Bozeman is in line to take a start and roll next season? But before you answer that, Be More Finest also gets in with, do you think Bozeman will be stronger and are starting center next season? So I think I think either center or left guard is a possibility for Bozeman next year, and, and so is a backup role. Um, right now, I, I you know, I'd still say Skura is the plurality at least likelihood to be the the center next season, so it might be forty percent Skura, thirty percent Bozeman, and thirty percent the field. Meaning they most likely they would go else. the draft, or, or or maybe they pick someone else up in free agency, whichever it might be. Um, I think that that he could also end up at left guard. Uh, they he needs to do some work. I really hope he'll do some work in this off season, working on technical offensive line play, where he really tries to learn how to be the guy who can pivot through the hole and torque his opponent, torque that defensive tackle. Because he's got the size and the mauling ability to do it. He delivered a lot of pancakes in relatively few snaps this year. So he's got the physical strength, I think, to do it. Uh, All players need to stay in the weight room. But in his case, I would love if he worked with an offensive line coach, really invested in himself this offseason, and and made progress. Because I think he, he, he certainly could. The left guard job, I think he's probably... Uh, could be his to lose if he if he uh, comes back and comes to camp a, a, a you know a little bit better technical offensive lineman. Gotcha. All right. Uh, final mailbag question is going to come from me at Josh Soroka, which is there's no question in the mailbag, so I got to insert it here. Does John Harbaugh coach his team next year? Yeah, I, I don't I don't see any real risk that he's going anywhere. I think all of the talk about him being traded and whatnot. Right. We're down to three <laughs> three openings now, I believe. Yeah, so so Denver, Denver, who has the the biggest wild man in terms of possibly making a trade for a for a um, uh, a head coach, didn't do it. So right. I, I don't I don't think any other team is really likely to do it. So we'll see we'll see John back here next year. I don't think well, I don't even think honestly it was ever really a question that that he'd be traded. It's just 
it's 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 foundational in nature. It's like it, you're 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 trying to keep pieces together to to build a contender. And if you're if you're really committed to getting a, no, a new coach, well, go ahead and get a new coach. If you had a great succession plan in place, I'd say go ahead and 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 you could trigger it by trading your number one guy. Like if they right. if somebody wanted to trade for Ozzie Newsom and they had DaCosta waiting in the rings, not that I don't I don't think that could happen. But if they decided they wanted to do that. That wouldn't have been the worst thing ever to like consider because you you have your you have your your next generation guy you want in place, but it's just like you know it could be just like trading your your quarterback in that case. But it, but in this case, I, I think the head coach is just too foundational, and I don't think that Harbaugh has the obvious head coaching number two. It could be Rosberg, I, you know, might be the guy at least on an interim basis uh, that would be the coach, and I just I'm not I'm not seeing that as the as the obvious selection. All right. Well, you did mention the Denver, so I'm going to double up on you. Uh, what's the process now for the Ravens to release Joe Flacco and him end up back over with Kubiak? Yeah, I, I think it, it, the big thing about Flacco is they need to, they'll need to have two bidders in order to get anything significant for him. If they don't, well, the Ravens can play a long waiting game with the other teams because they actually have a benefit from releasing Joe after June 1 that they can split the cap dollars. So there, there are reasons why the Ravens want to want to hold him around anyway, and then just release him, you know, later towards towards okay. camp sometime. So that that'll put the pressure on other teams, even if there's only one bidder, to give something that's a little something. Okay. And that little something, I I was thinking it might be a sixth round pick, but that's not right. It, it's probably a fourth or a fifth round pick if there's only one bidder. Okay, and if there's two bidders, then I don't know where this might go. I mean, you really, you if if there's two teams that are that are that are both desperate and both have. Joe Flacco is a significant upgrade, which is certainly possible. Um, then you you certainly could have uh, bidding that would that would take it somewhere. The, the the Jacksonville Jaguars have a tremendous defense. They could really benefit from having Joe Flacco, but they also have some cap issues. So for them to get into into position to take Joe's salary, which frankly is still very low for a quarterback, they have to make some moves. Uh, if if you look at some other teams in the league, um, Washington is still a possibility. Uh, in some ways, that would be good for Joe because of the need not to move too far. Um, he could he could go a few other places in the league. Denver being one of them. Uh, Denver has Case Keenum's uh, deal still in place, if I recall correctly. Right. So uh, he's uh, you know he's got he's got places he could end up. But the, from the Ravens' perspective, if they want to maximize the value from Joe Flacco, they need to have two bidders. Gotcha. And so it's not like the season's over. We cut Joe. He at least stays a, a Raven unless traded until June. That would, that would be my feeling is the Ravens are under no hurry to cut Joe Flacco here. So I think they'll they'll investigate trades. They'll you know, you can even go further than this. They could keep him through camp because uh, injuries happen right. during the preseason. And <laughs> There could be a significant injury during during camp well, or during the preseason. Which, how's. Do you know how his salary works as far as when you cut him before the next year money goes gets tied up? The the okay, so if if he's cut after June first, then the remaining dead money on the contract, which is approximately sixteen million, might be exactly sixteen million, but it's approximately that, is split eight can be split eight million and eight million between this year and next year. Now the the, the way the cap works you pretty much always want to push cap dollars when you can in the next year because right. the cap has an inflation component that it goes up year every year. So your cap dollars are worth less in the future than right. they're worth now. Yes. Okay. So so anyway, from that standpoint, um, they're also able to designate someone as a post-June 1 release 
sorry, uh, yeah, release, even if they released him early. I don't see any reason why they would do that in Flacco's case. So there's no reason to cut him early and, and right. allow him to just go to the market himself. I mean, it would be a nice thing to Joe to do for Joe, but frankly, Joe owes the Ravens, I think, a nice thing. He he, he got a tremendous contract after the Super Bowl. You know, obviously there 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 hasn't been a lot done during those years. They, they, I don't think he I don't think I think most people would say he didn't live up to the contracts since then. All right, and right. you the can con- disagree with that. Right. If you're yeah, he didn't live up to that contract, but if you look at that contract as as payment for previous then uh, you're paying them for that Super Bowl. Sure, so. sure. And, and, and I, I get that argument. And they, they did, you know, they, they got value out of Joe Flacco's 11 years. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that, you know, I think right now the Ravens have some value in the way that contract is structured. And Joe Flacco ought not be upset if the Ravens want to harvest that value by holding out and holding out and holding out until it's almost the start of the 2019 season. And I'd like to get, we'd like to get Brian McFarlane on for a segment to really talk about that yeah. in terms of, what what other limitations there are, but that's my understanding of it. And and if uh, I just I do not see how the Ravens will be in any rush to cut Joe Flacco. Gotcha. All right, Ken. Well, um, next week we're going to get on here and we're going to do the uh, kind of look back at the season and do the offense and defense players breakdowns with your five categories mm-hmm. on um, and kind of evaluate the roster, right? Yeah, evaluate the roster. Talk in, in this this one particularly. Look forward to the off season in terms of where are they most likely to make a contract decision with somebody, uh, including cuts, including signings, and including where they might need to go in terms of free agency in the draft. So we'll, we'll cover all that. One show for the offense, right. one show for the defense next week. But you're really nice about your cut these guys category because you don't call it you don't say call it like the get rid of these guys. It's a nice friendly name. The transitional they, category, right? Transitional. That's what it is. Yeah. So, yeah, you're nice to him. Um, I've already gone up on Russell Street Report. I see that you've got the offense all broken down up on Russell Street. Yeah, offensive line is out there. Follow me on on Twitter, at Film Study Ravens. Josh, tell them a little bit about the, whatever you'd like to tell them about. It's always – it's well, it's almost always Section 336 that we're going to be pushing because Ravens season's over, so it's time to start getting ready for baseball season. And – uh the Orioles have been busy with behind-the-scenes stuff for the past couple months, and now we're not too far away from spring training. we got FanFest in two weeks, so Section 336 will be up at FanFest uh, doing things there, and then lots of other Orioles stuff coming in the next couple weeks. That, that sounds good, man. I'm, I'm looking forward to that. and I, I, I will look forward to the development from the Orioles in this next year, although obviously they're, they're not going anywhere. Right. Big announcement from the Orioles today that they will host Billy Joel in July. <laughs> and uh, I'm not a fan of that, but uh, it is what it is. It's a business decision. There you go. So, all right, Kent. Well, we will talk next week. Introducing Guinness Nitro Cold Brew Coffee Beer, blending the smooth, creamy nitro taste of Guinness with hints of coffee, chocolate, and caramel. Guinness Nitro Cold Brew Coffee Beer, your new favorite part of the day. Look for it where Guinness is sold. Must be 21 and over to purchase. Please enjoy responsibly. Diageo Beer Company, New York, New York.
For the ones who get going when the going gets tough. And the ones who know we're tougher together. For the pathfinders breaking new ground. Granger offers supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as fast access to experts and 24-7 customer support. Because we know you have people depending on you. So you can always depend on us. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. For the ones who know safety isn't a catchphrase, it's a culture. And the ones who help make sure everyone makes it home safe. For the safety-minded who watch everyone's backs, Granger offers supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as safety assessments and training to keep your facilities safe and your people safer. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.